Seattle's Morning News. This is Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. In for Margaret Brennan this morning, CBS Chief Election and Campaign Correspondent Robert Costa. Uh, First of all, politics. Kevin McCarthy, has he got the speakership nailed down yet for the next Congress? He does not. Um, Some House Republicans say they will not vote for him. He needs 218 votes on the floor vote, a majority to become Speaker of the House. At this point, he's haggling with his colleagues, trying to get them to come off their hardline positions against him. Uh, And it remains to be seen whether he will be able to do that. Uh, But at the end of the day, we could have a bit of a chaotic moment for that speaker vote. Some Democrats might end up crossing the aisle supporting McCarthy instead of having total chaos. There could be even someone new who emerges. You don't rule anything out in politics. But at this point, it seems like Republicans are slowly but surely moving toward eventually backing McCarthy. I see. I'm a, I'm a little unclear as to what the hangup is and who the alternatives might be. This is not an ideological fight. It's very personal. Some of these members who don't like McCarthy just don't like the way he manages the House Republican conference. It'd be like someone saying who lives in an apartment complex, they don't like the landlord and his personality and how he, man- he or she manages things. This is not some kind of conservative versus liberal or conservative versus moderate fight. You also see no alternative emerging. There's not a high-profile person or, frankly, even a low-profile person who's standing up and saying, if not Kevin, why, why not me? Now, if McCarthy didn't get the votes and it was a truly tumultuous speaker vote on, on the floor of the House, there's a chance the number two, Steve Scalise, could step up and say, hey, I'm ready to be a consensus pick, but he's not making any noise about doing that. For now, it's all about the negotiations with McCarthy. Can they get some kind of agreement among the backbenders who don't like him to finally come around? Okay, so so nothing, you don't think anything crazy is going to happen? Because I, I was reading some speculation that even a Democrat could emerge. You don't think that's likely? Well, if that's going to happen, it, 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 it's not likely, but it's possible. You would need Democrats to vote for one person and then work with some moderate Republicans to come up to the number of 218. At this point, the Biden White House and Hakeem Jeffries, the new incoming Democratic leader, they don't seem to be making any move to try to have some kind of coalition government or consensus speaker who's backed by both Democrats and Republicans. Uh, At this point, they're quite ready to watch the Republicans squirm on this. I guess so. All right. Uh, you, of course, are quite famous for your books on uh, Donald Trump. What do you make of these these new uh, superhero non-fungible token trading cards that he issued yesterday? It has uh, left a lot of Republicans in my sourcing world taken aback. They don't think it's helpful to his presidential campaign. It's a distraction in the eyes of many Republicans on Capitol Hill. But in some ways, it's not unsurprising. Trump has been a salesman for years, selling his brand, selling different products. As someone told me yesterday, this is who he is. This is who he is. Uh, but Republicans often would expect different or, or, or would expect something a tad more, shall we say, presidential. Uh, but they've grown to accept that Trump is running. He could very well be their nominee again. And he could be a nominee who's also selling NFTs. And that's the world they live in. Okay, so the I mean, when I saw the that he was, I mean, selling these things for ninety nine dollars of himself dressed up like Superman, uh, I started asking myself: so is this really a serious presidential campaign, or is he just hoping gullible people will send him money to pay his legal expenses? When he ran for president in twenty fifteen, I flew around the country covering him, covered him on his plane, 
he would do theatrical thing after theatrical thing, uh, attention grabbing effort after attention grabbing effort. I just keep thinking of what this congressman told me yesterday. This is who he is. It, it was different then in the sense he wasn't directly selling product, but he was still selling product in many ways. Think about Trump during the 2015-2016 period, often talking up his golf courses, talking up his properties, uh, always selling. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, you would know. So, oh, one more question for you. Is your Twitter account still active or have you been suspended like uh, a number of other journalists? Uh, My Twitter account is still up, but who knows? Uh, I take each day and each hour by the hour, each day by the day. I hope my Twitter account stays up, but at the end of the day, my job is to report. And if that's not available, hey, I'll move on. And the January 6th committee is going to have apparently one more hearing next week and then criminal referrals. Uh, Again, just uh, drawing on your expertise on this issue, is there going to be a recommendation to uh, go after Donald Trump himself? seems to be moving in that direction. I sat down with Congressman Jamie Raskin in recent days. He, he seemed to be leaning into, into the idea of criminality taking place in his view, and that would suggest he's a major member of the committee, that referrals are certainly possible. The challenge for the committee is if referrals are made saying Donald Trump committed a crime or X person committed a crime, uh, the Justice Department will listen to it, but that was, that's about it. It's a symbolic gesture. At the end of the day, the ongoing grand jury investigations from the Justice Department, they will make the decision. The special counsel appointed will make the decision on Trump himself. The grand juries will make the decision on other characters from the January 6th story. So Congress has brought a lot of new evidence to the table, but they don't make indictments. And the special counsel investigation, does that go on regardless of who runs the Congress? Oh, that will. And that even functions if Merrick Garland, the attorney general, leaves the Justice Department. The special counsel continues. The special counsel was put up there simply because Trump became a federal candidate running for the White House again. Uh, The attorney general didn't think it would be appropriate to have someone appointed by President Biden making decisions about someone's legal status who's running against President Biden. And so the special counsel was appointed. And this may extend the whole investigation period. The special counsel keeps issuing new subpoenas. So there's yet another front now that's building on Trump. So he'll have the status essentially of Kenneth Starr. He can't be fired? I mean, he, he technically can be fired for different cause reasons, but he can't be fired because someone doesn't like how he's going about the investigation. All right. CBS News Chief Election and Campaign Correspondent Robert Costa. Robert, thank you. Thank you. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. 637. And our resident historian Felix Spinell joins us Friday mornings for All Over the Map. A quick look at the stories behind local places and things. Victor Steinbrook Park at Pike Place Market is going to be closing next week for a long renovation project. And it is named for the man who, according to you, Felix invented the culture of caring about and doing something about preserving Seattle history. Why wouldn't we all be better off that hadn't happened? No, just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, at the north end of Pike Place Market, the foot of Virginia Street is Victor Steinbrook Park. It was created in the early 1980s and was originally called Market Park. And when the Seattle architect Victor Steinbrook passed away in 1985, it was named for him. Steinbrook had actually designed Market Park along with landscape architect Rich Hag. That's the guy who designed Gasworks Park. That's a whole other story. So it made sense to name the park for Victor Steinbrook for that reason. But it was mainly because it was Victor Steinbrook who led the grassroots campaign and the eventual public vote to save Pike Place Market rather than replace it with something called Pike Place Plaza. I don't know if you've ever seen images of no. this. It was a proposed major redevelopment. It would have uh, put in pedestrian malls, parking garages, ring roads. 
would have wiped out almost everything that makes Seattle unique. Would have been just there'd be no traces left of what we know and love as Pike Place Market. Now, I think because that was so long ago that we, myself included, don't fully appreciate what it meant to step up and say we should save this old neighborhood during a time when preserving anything was antithetical to the drumbeat of progress and what they called urban renewal in those days. And then to go beyond just saying that and actually take action, I mean, that's downright radical for its time, and you can't overstate that. And I got to wondering where that inspiration came from for Victor Steinbrook. One thing, he was a young architect in the post-war period. That's when people were immersed in a time of modernism. He designed modern houses. He designed the Space Needle. So he's, he's got a modern side to him. But in 1953, I just learned this a few weeks ago, he wrote the very first book about the history of Seattle architecture, documenting indigenous structures from the 1850s back up to the 1950s. So I reached out to Victor Steinbrook's son, Peter. He's a former city council member, former port commissioner, grew up in the middle of his dad's preservation efforts beginning 60 years ago and thought pretty much everyone's dad did that sort of thing with signs and (laughs) petitions and stuff. Now, Peter Steinbrook says his dad, Victor, was an urbanist, but not in the sense of demolishing and modernizing at all costs but in more of a cosmic sense of balancing the old with the new, the traditional with the modern. And Peter Steinbrook says saving the market and also helping save Pioneer Square in an era when historic preservation wasn't really being applied to to many American cities was not something that his father set out to do. I think he was thrown into this kind of lonely preservationist crusade (laughs) at a time of great change because he was shocked and appalled that the downtown leaders were planning to tear down Pioneer Square and put up parking garages and build freeways around the city and through the city and and tear down Pike Place Market. And uh, these things that he felt were unique to Seattle, and they are and they were, that they there needed to be greater attention to protecting those places. So he kind of became a you know a, a preservationist out of necessity because of his shock and horror at what was going on. Yeah, and thinking about what Victor Steinberg did, I think he's one of a handful of people in the city who I would say invented really caring about the history here. I mean, there were writers as early as the 19th century who were documenting history, but those guys, just like me, just sat home and wrote things you know, and <laughs> talked about it. But Steinbrook's different. He, he, he published some gorgeous sketchbooks. I had one. I put one there by your desk there, Dave. These things back in the early 60s called oh. uh, you know, C- Seattle Cityscape. But he also got his hands dirty, saving the things he'd been sketching and writing about. And that's worth remembering. Those old books, you can find those in used bookstores. They're pretty cheap nowadays. But um, Victor Steinberg Park's closing early next week for about a year. Seattle Park says the waterproof membrane between the park and the garage underneath it is failing. They're also making um, several changes to the landscape and connecting the park to that market front part of the market. So anyway, great piece of Seattle history. We should never forget the power of caring about and then doing something about preserving. 648 Seattle's Morning News. Of course, it's the season for holiday songs. And some may have you humming along, but others may have you muttering bah humbug. Sleigh bells ring. Are you listening? Here, like in much of the country, the more classic holiday songs tend to be the favorites. Uh, Marking with the wind in the winter wonderland. Um, favorite would be Angels We Have Heard on High. Uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Favorite holiday song? Santa Baby. Santa Baby, just slip a sable under the tree. In fact, Eartha Kitt's 1953 version of Santa Baby was the most popular holiday song in eight states. The most of any, according to a finance buzz analysis of Google. Trends. Three songs took the top spot in at least five states, including Jingle Bell Rock, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, and Feliz Navidad. But none of them took the top spot in Washington State. That honor goes to. Last Christmas, I gave you my heart. 
Yeah, from Wham's. That's, that's probably one of my favorite Christmas songs. Yeah. Again, that's Wham's version of Last Christmas, not to be confused with the Wiener Konzerthaus version in Vienna. I did not see it on the list of the most popular or most annoying holiday songs. Yeah, there are some holiday songs that really bug people. The one where they count up all the stuff. <laughs> like, <laughs> where they be like, I don't know what the name of it is. It's but 12 I, Days of Christmas? I believe so, yeah. Five gold rings. Yeah, I always get lost in that one. It's not fair. They got to print the lyrics out or something. And a partridge in a pear tree. But according to BuzzField and my unofficial survey, the most annoying holiday song. Least favorite, all I want for Christmas is you. Oh yeah, all I want for Christmas is you, that's all bad, dude. Yes, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You is once again on the Billboard Hot 100, but suffers from a bit of overplay. Keep in mind, though, the thoughts of this Seattleite who insists there is no such thing as a bad holiday song. No, I think holidays is for, again, joyousness and happiness. So there's no such thing as an ugly Christmas carol or an ugly song. Heather Bosch, Kyber News Radio. I think people don't like that song because they can't sing along with her. So is, few have her range. So difficult, right, to get and those high notes. I'm surprised of the annoying songs that Wonderful Christmas Time by Paul McCartney wasn't on there. What did he do there? Every time I hear that song, it sounds like we've taken drugs. <laughs> right? Well, that the moon maybe, is out. Yes, right. I think they needed, they were told, do a Christmas song. We don't care what it is. It's so, it's like abstract music. I think that Christmas would be immeasurably improved if all the songs were done to Abba tunes, which oh, yeah. is why for our holiday special, we put this one together.
You didn't give me the lyrics either, but I love it. I was Just bopping whoa, along Whoa, to that. whoa, whoa. Jingle bells. Okay, got it. Next time. Jeez. This is Seattle's Morning News. So as you know, when traffic coach Chris heads out of town, we lean on Ted to watch the roads. But uh, he is also a uh, National Weather Service meteorologist. And uh, he has decades of experience. And so it's very fortunate to have you here with us today because uh, this, at least when I saw the first computer predictions a couple of days ago, was shaping up as a, a major snowstorm. It literally, they were predicting like six inches in the Seattle area. So that looks like they're spreading that out a little bit. But uh, give us your perspective on this. What's causing it and how much snow do you expect? Well, there's a recipe for snow here in western Washington. Number one, you need the cold air. Right. Number two, you need the moisture. And you got to have the combination of both of those. It's kind of like a traffic crash, if I can put my traffic <laughs> hat on real quick. We have a lot of what I could describe as near misses. My former boss at the Weather Service always described it that way as well. I'll give him credit for that. Um, so what is really certain is we're going to get some colder air coming in from the interior British Columbia over the weekend and into early next week. The next question is, are we going to have any moisture to accompany it? So during the weekend, primarily tomorrow night into Sunday, pretty limited amount of moisture associated with the colder air coming in. So it wouldn't surprise me to see some light snow, spotty accumulations here and there. Probably the greatest odds for accumulation will be over in the Cascade foothills and on up into the Cascades itself. The next source of moisture coming in early next week, prim primarily the latter part of Monday into Tuesday. Uh, and at that point, that's when we might start to see a pretty messy situation. So it could start out as snow. And then for places like Bellingham with still winds coming out of the Fraser Canyon, it could turn into freezing rain. Uh, but by the time we get to the latter part of Wednesday into Thursday, ocean air starts filtering into western Washington, and we're going to warm up, and uh, it's all going to turn to rain. So it's just that questionable period of that transition mm -hmm. from the cold air back to the milder air from the Pacific. Uh, that's the issue. And as you've just discussed Everything seems to be fluid from, you know, one particular computer run to another. And keep in mind, they're all not in the same uh, page of music here. There, yeah. There's quite a spread. So this is one of those situations where you just stay tuned, find out what's going on, and, and be prepared in advance. I'm amazed that those computer predictions are as accurate as they are when you consider the number of factors you have to consider. And, and as you point out, snow requires basically a collision of two separate forces, right? The moisture coming from one direction, the cold air coming from another. What I hear you saying is that air from the Pacific, good. Air from our friends in Canada, bad. Well, we don't want to slight our friends from the north, but yes, every once in a while they do import colder air from that direction, and that's when we have our potential snow situations. So in terms of uh, what we're facing uh, later uh, next week, once that, uh, I mean, people will see the snow accumulate, and we could, how many inches do you think will will fall before it starts to warm up? It depends on the location. Again, as you know, our weather around here is terrain-driven. Yeah. Some places may get little or none. Other places may get three, four inches or so. Uh, but again, it's going to be rather short-lived, and we're going to have a, probably a pretty messy transition as we move from the white stuff to the frozen stuff to the freezing stuff 
to the wet stuff. So that's what's going to happen then. We'll get we'll get an accumulation of regular frozen snow, but by the end of the week, it's going to rain on that, and it'll turn to slush, yeah. is that we're seeing? Probably by Thursday, it's all over. If you're thinking about, uh, well, there's two ways to interpret that, Ted. <laughs> 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 we're, 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 we're talking the snow weather's here. finished. Okay, <laughs> uh, for people, uh, it's I mean, people are planning their holiday visits about this time. So uh, let's address the past conditions now specifically. What what would be the best time to get across the state if that's where you're headed? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, somebody asked me that from Marysville yesterday, and I said, you know, if you're going to the the Pendleton Umatilla area on Thursday, I'd go down to Portland, go through the Columbia Gorge. Uh, because up in the passes, it's still maybe a pretty messy situation. And we've already witnessed how we have some, shall we say, ill-prepared motorists For sure. that go up there. Uh, and uh, the, you have the potential of closing the highway and things like that. So uh, I know it's longer to go down to Vancouver and turn left on Interstate 84. But uh, that might be a, a much safer drive if you're heading to the east side. Okay, so we're talking Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday for that advice, which looks like it's the heart of the storm? Uh, I would say yes. Yes, that's correct. All right. Good advice. Thank you, Ted. Time for your daily dose of kindness. It's sponsored by Heritage Homecraft. There are approximately 400,000 children in America's foster care system including 17-year-old Julie, who's part of a program that helps foster kids by giving them the skills they need to succeed in life. CBS's Mark Strassman has the story. At 17, senior Julie Penaford could be just another kid bouncing around California's foster care system. Instead, she's found hope with help. They're like family to me, so it's like I look up to them a lot, and they've made a big impact in my life. They are First Star Academy at UCLA. This privately funded national program on 15 college campuses recruits, practically rescues, foster care kids when they're high school freshmen. It teaches them life skills and you could say improbably pulls college dreams out of a black trash bag. A lot of foster youth know what the black um, trash bag means. Sometimes they only get a couple minutes to pack everything that they have in this room and take it to the next placement. When a caseworker shows up with a black trash bag, they know it means it's time to go again. Yes. Sometimes they don't get an alert. Nationally, roughly half of foster kids graduate high school. 10% go to college. But First Star seniors, 97% graduate high school. Roughly two out of three enroll in four-year colleges. What is it your program is doing right We are providing them positive adult role model that is going to be with them for four years. Consistency. is the key word. I just think childhood experiences, you're taught to, you know, keep your head down, be quiet, to stay out of trouble and not get yelled at. Isael Andrade is Julie's mentor. Now 23, this former foster kid went to seven different middle schools. I went to the same stuff that Julie did. You know, our stories are very similar. Once a month for four years, they've met in person, but they're constantly talking talking, making sure she's on track. It's like, I see him as a brother. What's the biggest thing he's taught you? I think how to stand up for myself. (laughs) Would you at 13 recognize you at 17? No, I would not. Julie's applying to college now. Whatever she does, I'm going to be proud of her. Her first choice, UCLA. For Eye on America, Mark Strassman in Los Angeles. (laughs) 
748 and now for the GN Ursula show, which starts at 9. Here is G. Scott. Can I well, brag for a minute? Yeah, go ahead, brag. I just want to brag. <laughs> this, this, you know what it's going to be about. This morning in what? the G. Scott mail slot. What happened? By, there was no hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. That was good. Now let's um, move on. But there, but there was a there was a box of chocolate. Yeah. yeah. And it was a Christmas gift from Dave Ross. Wow. Product from Mercer Island. Yeah. Dave, thank you, man. Like, well, you're very welcome. Now, question. Yeah. This is the first year you've gotten me a present. Right. Is this the reason why is because of our discussions about giving coworkers Christmas gifts recently? Well, yes. Also because I feel I I know you and I have the enough of a relationship to be worthy of giving you a gift. Oh, wow. Oh, wait, wait, I just don't stand on the street corners, you know, throwing gifts to people. Yeah. But Dave, yeah. it's not like Skittles from a, you know. I've been I've been at Bonneville eight years, bruh. So yeah. you didn't know me the previous seven? I don't know. You were just on our show in the last year, though. Yeah, I mean, you Colleen, were... would you let Dave answer this? No, I'm not going to let you put him in an awkward position. Don't mess with my Dave. I know what you're doing. I knew you were here, but I don't work generally with the sports people. Yeah. But you uh, come into you come into the studio every single morning. That's right. And you let me wear your shoes. No. I love you guys. So, I mean, you guys are like intimate now wearing each other's shoes. It's an intimate let's, relationship. Let's not take it too far, Colleen. Yes. <laughs> uh, Intimacy doesn't mean you guys are spooning. You share shoes. It's not like a cougar moment. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently that comment you'll, really <laughs> a lot of people You'll talk do to anything about. to avoid talking about last night's game, won't you? We just want to talk about All you. Right. Last night's game. That was the final exam. Yeah. Mm. He got turned in. It wasn't good. Um, it was ugly. It was ugly. It was ugly from even before the game. And mm-hmm. this is what I mean. The confidence that the San Francisco 49er fans had yesterday was something. You, you know how you can just feel the energy? Mm-hmm. You could feel the energy. It wasn't the energy of the past. Because usually when Niner fans come to the game, you know, they're, they're, they're there, but they know what it is, right? The Seahawks have kind of, you know, the last 10 years have been pretty much dominant on uh, when it comes to the Niners. Well, yesterday there was like this, like they know they're good. They know about the number one defense. They know they have Nick Bosa. They know they have this new quarterback in Brock Purdy that I keep telling y'all about that this yeah, dude is good. Right. And, and, and they had this arrogance, and I'm not mad at them. And they had it, and then, of course, the game gets started, and you can just feel it. And, yeah, the Seahawks didn't win. And, I mean, still not lost yet. They still have an opportunity to make the playoffs based on what oh, the Giants. See, when you said final test, I thought this was like they're out, but they're still going to play no, for, for what? No. Honor? <laughs> right, right. No, they, they can still make the playoffs. Uh, the Giants and uh, Washington Commanders, you know, based on what they do, um, they, the Seahawks can kill, still sneak in. What I meant by the final exam was this. The question is, are the Seahawks a real Super Bowl contender? Are they legitimately a team that can go out there and you're like, yeah, get to, they're going to the Super Bowl. And what yesterday did for me, I can't speak for anybody else, that was the test. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're at home. It's prime time, which you are 10-2 and two during Thursday night games. It's a division opponent. It's the San Francisco 49ers. This is a game. This is your final exam. Yeah. You didn't win. Yeah. As a matter of fact, you didn't win the last home game, which was against the Carolina Panthers. Before that, the last home game was the Raiders. 
right? So yeah. when you lose those games at, games at home and knowing that if you were to sneak in the playoffs that you would have to go on the road, yeah, yeah. that was the final exam. Okay, I get it. And Tyler Lockett, oh, breaking a bone in his hand. It's awful, yeah. considering the, the kind of year he was, getting close to 1,000 yards receiving. And, I mean, I, I love that the Seahawks fought, and, and towards the end they had an opportunity. It was third and two. The Seahawks had a chance to force them to punt, third and two, and then that's when I almost threw my cell phone because it was third and two, <laughs> well, and, then they, and they ripped off a 58-yard run. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it was it was ugly. And then another, I think the last part of it that did it for me, the fact that the Niners clinched uh, the division title, and they did it right here at Lumen Field. And that Richard Sherman too. was there to watch it. <laughs> Arr, that was tough. Yeah, Richard Sherman got a uh, he, he, got, he, he yeah. waved to the crowd. He got a he got an ovation. Sure. <laughs> yeah, people, you now you were wrong on the score, but I will say the Seahawks scored thirteen, and that's the inverse of thirty-one. Mm. So we still have some you know magic happening there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, the inverse of thirty-one what? is sorry is one over thirty-one. Okay, thank but you. I just want Dave. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Jeez. Before we get out of here, I just you, tried to sound smart, and you smacked no, me down. No, no, I know we only got, got a minute, but uh, you guys were talking about Christmas carols yes. yeah. earlier, and I was trying to tell James about uh, Mariah Carey and All I Want for Christmas. Yeah. Well, what happened? Something happened, because two years ago, two, three years ago, we weren't this way about Mariah Carey, yeah. but today, anytime that song comes on, I cringe. Why? And uh, I don't know. Oversaturation. I, mm, is it, though? I think so. There's other songs that are, quote, yeah. oversaturated. Like Jingle Bells. I, I think, Colleen, I think it's I think it's Mariah Carey. Because she embraced it and she's now flaunting it? Because remember, she, she took on Halloween, she was like on a broom and she was like, <laughs> it's coming. I, and that's kind of annoying, <laughs> right? She did and that. Yeah, she did. I, that was too it's, good. It, thank you. It's, cool, it's cooler when you're like, oh, it's popular, whatever. You know? Yeah, a little too arrogant. Do, huh? do you like yeah. the song? Hmm? I do, yeah. Do you, Dave? I can't sing in her range, so I, I like songs that I can sing. Oh, I heard with. that song you guys played for you. That was yeah. good. Yeah. And you yeah. like you like anything with Baba. Yeah, with Baba, Abba, 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 Baba. Oh, Abba, <laughs> Abba. All right, let me get out of here. Baba, get out of here before I make Dave mad. Abba, sorry, Jeez, I'm sorry. Scott. Seattle's Morning News, Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien, and here's Mickey Gomez, who I understand has a child in the Seattle School District. I have two. Well, have you heard this year the snow days are going to be virtual? You're going to be doing them from home? That's Crazy. right, and that makes it even more difficult for me as a parent and a working mom. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Seattle Public Schools. Mm-hmm. But I understand the reasoning for it so because they've already missed so much school to begin with and then with the possibility of leaving school Friday spending the holidays with family with friends traveling getting sick with COVID maybe even and Mm -hmm. the flu bringing it back Seattle Public Schools just want to be prepared for not only, I think, I mean, they're saying, hey, it's because of the fact that, you know, we may have some snow days ahead of us. But I think they're just trying to cover all their bases in case a lot of kids do come back to school sick. Yeah. I, I, so they can make this blanket decision and say, if there is a snow day, you will still be expected to show up 
virtually to school and parents don't have a say in this? Well, that's what the district has said, that the move is in response to requests from parents and staff Mm -hmm. to avoid possibly extending the school year into early July. Ah. So after the teacher strike, you know, postponed the start of school, they have no more days to work with, apparently. And so now if they have snow days, they're saying, "Ah, well, You still got to go to school. The email that we received was information from the district that just said, you know, start times are going to be delayed or the district is going to move to remote learning in the event that the roads are unsafe. As a parent, maybe Mm -hmm. not so much as a journalist, I'm reading this going, "Mm -hmm. yeah, they're preparing for kids to come back and perhaps being sick. That's just what I see. So you think this is going to be extended to cover other circumstances? Oh, I see what you know. What she's saying is that they're trying to get people reused to remote learning now before yeah. if there's another COVID surge, they have right. to go back to the online Because, model. I mean, in snow day, your kid you would be stuck at home in any case. Well, what was really interesting to me is that a couple of weeks ago, we all had the flu, right? I'm bringing that back up. My family had the flu. Well, I called my son out and said, hey... Javier's been out for the last couple of days. We have the flu. Here's the doctor's note. And um, the receptionist or whomever answered the phone and she just said, oh, yeah, we've got so many kids out of school. As a matter of fact, I think maybe um, your one of your son's Spanish class only had five students show up yeah, today. Similar at my daughter's elementary school. There's a lot of kids and- out sick and they're missing that education time. So you think, all right to balance it out, stick them on a remote cam. Right. Uh, I just, I'm sad for the kids that they won't get a true snow day. That's a really exciting thing as a kid, and I don't want to take that away from them, too. So the alternative, Colleen, is to extend the school year, which will cut into summer, though. Well, and this is where I go to, I think that we should only have three months on, one month off, three months or two weeks on, you know, whatever. it. I think we should have year-round school with just two weeks breaks in between. I think that's more doable for families. I think that then you don't have to make up for that learning gap through this. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss the show. summer. There's no worry about snow days. Here's the schedule. Mickey Gomez.